Book Four, Chapter Fifteen of Ben Hur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ, by Lew Wallace, Book Four, Chapter Fifteen. The shadows cast over the orchard of palms by the mountains at set of sun left no sweet margin time of violet sky and drowsing earth between the day and night. The latter came early and swift, and against its glooming in the tent this evening the servants brought four candlesticks of brass and set them by the corners of the table. To each candlestick there were four branches, and on each branch a lighted silvered lamp and a supply cup of olive oil. In light ample, even brilliant, the group at dessert continued their conversation, speaking in the Syriac dialect, familiar to all peoples in that part of the world. The Egyptian told his story of the meeting of the three in the desert, and agreed with the sheikh that it was in December, twenty-seven years before, when he and his companions, fleeing from Herod, arrived at the tent, praying shelter. The narrative was heard with intense interest, even the servants lingering when they could to catch its details. Ben-Hur received it as became a man listening to a revelation of deep concern to all humanity, and to none of more concern than the people of Israel. In his mind, as we shall presently see, there was crystallizing an idea which was to change his course of life, if not absorb it absolutely. As the recital proceeded, the impression made by Balthazar upon the young Jew increased. At its conclusion his feeling was too profound to permit a doubt of its truth, Indeed, there was nothing left him desirable in the connection but assurances, if such were to be had, pertaining exclusively to the consequences of the amazing event. And now there is wanting an explanation which the very discerning may have heretofore demanded. Certainly it can be no longer delayed. Our tale begins, in point of date not less than fact, to trench close upon the opening of the ministry of the son of Mary, whom we have seen but once since this same Balthazar left him worshipfully in his mother's lap in the cave by Bethlehem. Henceforth to the end, the mysterious child will be a subject of continual reference, and slowly, though surely, the current of events with which we are dealing will bring us nearer and nearer to him, until finally we see him a man. We would like, if armed contrariety of opinion would permit it, to add, a man whom the world could not do without. Of this declaration, apparently so simple, a shrewd mind inspired by faith will make much, and in welcome. Before his time, and since, there have been men indispensable to particular people and periods, but his indispensability was to the whole race, and for all time, a respect in which it is unique, solitary, divine. To Sheikh Ilderim the story was not new. He had heard it from the three wise men together, under circumstances which left no room for doubt. He had acted upon it seriously, for the helping a fugitive escape from the anger of the first Herod was dangerous. Now one of the three sat at his table again, a welcome guest and revered friend. Sheikh Ilderim certainly believed the story, yet in the nature of things, its mighty central fact could not come home to him with the force and absorbing effect it came to Ben-Hur. He was an Arab, whose interest in the consequences was but general. On the other hand, Ben-Hur was an Israelite and a Jew, 
with more than a special interest in, if the solecism can be pardoned, the truth of the fact. He laid hold of the circumstance with a purely Jewish mind. From his cradle, let it be remembered, he had heard of the Messiah. At the colleges he had been made familiar with all that was known of that being, at once the hope, the fear, and the peculiar glory of the chosen people. The prophets from the first to the last of the heroic line foretold him, and the coming had been, and yet was, the theme of endless exposition with the rabbis, in the synagogues, in the schools, in the temple, of fast days and feast days, in public and in private, the national teachers expounded and kept expounding until all the children of Abraham, wherever their lots were cast, bore the Messiah in expectation, and by it literally, and with iron severity, ruled and moulded their lives. Doubtless it will be understood from this that there was much argument among the Jews themselves about the Messiah, and so there was. But the disputation was all limited to one point, and one only. When would he come? Disquisition is for the preacher, whereas the writer is but telling a tale, and that he may not lose his character, the explanation he is making requires notice merely of a point connected with the Messiah, about which the unanimity among the chosen people was matter of marvellous astonishment. He was to be, when come, the king of the Jews, their political king, their Caesar. By their instrumentality he was to make armed conquest of the earth, and then, for their profit, and in the name of God, hold it down for ever. On this faith, dear reader, the Pharisees, or separatists, the latter being rather a political term, in the cloisters and around the altars of the temple, built an edifice of hope far overtopping the dream of the Macedonian. His but covered the earth, theirs covered the earth and filled the skies, that is to say, in their bold, boundless fantasy of blasphemous egotism, God the Almighty was in effect to suffer them for their uses, to nail him by the ear to a door in sign of eternal servitude. Returning directly to Ben-Hur, it is to be observed now that there were two circumstances in his life, the result of which had been to keep him in a state comparatively free from the influence and hard effects of the audacious faith of his separatist countrymen. In the first place, his father followed the faith of the Sadducees, who may, in a general way, be termed the liberals of their time. They had some loose opinions in denial of the soul. They were strict constructionists and rigorous observers of the law as found in the books of Moses, but they held the vast mass of rabbinical agenda to those books in derisive contempt. They were unquestionably a sect, yet their religion was more a philosophy than a creed. They did not deny themselves the enjoyments of life, and saw many admirable methods and productions among the Gentile divisions of the race. In politics, they were the active opposition of the separatists. In the natural order of things, these circumstances and conditions, opinions and peculiarities, would have descended to the son as certainly and really as any portion of his father's estate, and, as we have seen, he was actually in course of acquiring them when the second saving event overtook him. Upon a youth of Ben-Hur's mind and temperament, the influence of five years of affluent life in Rome can be appreciated best by recalling that the great city was then, in fact, 
the meeting-place of the nations, their meeting-place politically and commercially, as well as for the indulgence of pleasure without restraint. Round and round the golden milestone in front of the forum, now in gloom of eclipse, now in unapproachable splendour, flowed all the active currents of humanity. If excellences of manner, refinements of society, attainments of intellect, and glory of achievement made no impression upon him, how could he, as the son of Arius, pass day after day, through a period so long, from the beautiful villa near Mycenaeum into the receptions of Caesar, and be wholly uninfluenced by what he saw there of kings, princes, ambassadors, hostages, and delegates, suitors all of them from every known land, waiting humbly the yes or no, which was to make or unmake them. As mere assemblages, to be sure, there was nothing to compare with the gatherings at Jerusalem in celebration of the Passover. Yet when he sat under the purple valaria of the Circus Maximus, one of three hundred and fifty thousand spectators, he must have been visited by the thought that possibly there might be some branches of the family of man worth divine consideration, if not mercy, though they were of the uncircumcised, some by their sorrows, and, yet worse, by their hopelessness in the midst of sorrows, fitted for brotherhood in the promises to his countrymen. That he should have had such a thought under such circumstances was but natural. We think so much at least will be admitted. But when the reflection came to him, and he gave himself up to it, he could not have been blind to a certain distinction. The wretchedness of the masses, and their hopeless condition, had no relation whatever to religion. Their murmurs and groans were not against their gods, or for want of gods. In the oak woods of Britain the Druids held their followers. Odin and Freya maintained their godships in Gaul, in Germany, and among the Hyperboreans. Egypt was satisfied with her crocodiles and Anubis. The Persians were yet devoted to Ormuz and Araman, holding them in equal honour, in hope of the Nirvana, the Hindus moved on, patient as ever, in the rayless paths of Brahm. The beautiful Greek mind, in pauses of philosophy, still sang the heroic gods of Homer, while in Rome nothing was so common and cheap as gods. According to Wim, the masters of the world, because they were masters, carried their worship and offerings indifferently from altar to altar, delighted in the pandemonium they had erected. Their discontent, if they were discontented, was with the number of gods, for, after borrowing all the divinities of the earth, they proceeded to deify their Caesars, and vote them altars and holy service. No, the unhappy condition was not from religion, but misgovernment and usurpations and countless tyrannies. The Avernus men had been tumbled into, and were praying to be relieved from, was terribly but essentially political. The supplication, everywhere alike, in Lodinum, Alexandria, Athens, Jerusalem, was for a king to conquer with, not a god to worship. Studying the situation after two thousand years, we can see and say that religiously there was no relief from the universal confusion, except some god who could prove himself a true god, and a masterful one, and come to the rescue. But the people of the time, even the discerning and philosophical, discovered no hope except in crushing Rome, 
That done, the relief would follow in restorations and reorganizations. Therefore they prayed, conspired, rebelled, fought and died, drenching the soil today with blood, tomorrow with tears, and always with the same result. It remains to be seen now that Ben-Hur was in agreement with the mass of men of his time, not Romans. The five years' residence in the capital served him with opportunity to see and study the miseries of the subjugated world, and in full belief that the evils which afflicted it were political, and to be cured only by the sword, he was going forth to fit himself for a part in the day of resort to the heroic remedy. By practice of arms he was a perfect soldier. But war has its higher fields, and he who would move successfully in them must know more than to defend with shield and thrust with spear. In those fields the general finds his tasks, the greatest of which is the reduction of the many into one, and that one himself. The consummate captain is a fighting man armed with an army. This conception entered into the scheme of life to which he was further swayed by the reflection that the vengeance he dreamed of, in connection with his individual wrongs, would be more surely found in some of the ways of war than in any pursuit of peace. The feelings with which he listened to Balthazar can be now understood. The story touched two of the most sensitive points of his being so they rang within him. His heart beat fast, and faster still when, searching himself, he found not a doubt either that the recital was true in every particular, or that the child so miraculously found was the Messiah. Marvelling much that Israel rested so dead to the revelation, and that he had never heard of it before that day, two questions presented themselves to him as centering all it was at that moment further desirable to know. Where was the child then? And what was his mission? With apologies for the interruptions, he proceeded to draw out the opinions of Balthazar, who was in no wise loath to speak. End of chapter